Looking for beyond ordinary investment opportunities? Global X ETFs is here to help with their suite of thematic income, commodity, and digital asset funds. Explore the range at globalxetfs.com.au. And now, on with the show. How are you now? Broadcasting from, oh, the city of Sydney uh, at Martin Place in Sydney. You are listening to The Bip Show, Season 7, Episode 2. We are sponsored again, as mentioned last time. Thank you to GlobalX for all they've done and a reminder that the financial information found in this podcast is general in nature. Only speak to a professional advisor about your needs. Speaking of which, I am James Wheel, an investment manager at VFS Group. Today, I am joined by Alan Gray, Managing Director and CIO Simon Wawini. Simon, how are you now? Very well. Thank you, James. Thank good. you for your time. <laughs> good, good of you to join us. Now, I was going to open this story with the UBS garbage bag story. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to take up your time with a, with a, a hilarious yarn about my time when I was at UBS. But there is, I'll, I'll leave it for the end of the show. I'll tack it in at the end. If you want to stick around for it, then you're perfectly welcome to, Simon. Thank you very much. But let's just get straight into it. Uh, in the last podcast um, your performance so this was the last time we spoke was last year about midway about about midway through I think that COVID the COVID effects were just sort of wearing off I remember you were wearing a mask when I when I when I saw you come into the room <laughs> everyone was still a little bit cagey about about what was going on in that particular part of the world we're still on the other uh, just coming out the other side of it your performance had after a few years obviously of being a little bit behind a crazy market as it was which I would be surprised if it wasn't uh your performance did start to to, to to shine through and has continued to shine through now. Uh, how have you found the last six months um, with your style of investing? Uh, the six months have been good. The last six months have been good. Um, I, I guess, again... Feel free to crow the performance if you want to do that. I mean, that's, no, no, it's, I guess... Your, it's your story. Well, I mean, how, how do you be one of the best performing fund managers over the last 12 months? And the way to do that is to be one of the worst performing fund managers over the 12 months prior to that. Correct. And, and that is yeah. what happened to us. I mean, we weren't the best last year, and but, but we weren't the worst the year before, but we did have a particularly bad COVID drawdown. And we've fought our way through to a position now where, unfortunately, whilst not awful, we've pretty much just washed our faces over the last three or so years um, as these techie, momentum new-age companies fell out of favour and old-world, uh, free cash flow-positive earnings-generating companies became back in vogue. And I, so and, and th- that coincided with the rise in interest rates um, but yeah, so I guess it's just the fundamentals have taken hold again. Um, uh, it, it's not nice when market participants start ignoring them because we're fundamental investors, but from time to time that happens. And this was a particularly big drawdown for us. And yeah, the last 12 months have been a ray of sunshine. Do you think it's going to be able to continue with the, with the direction that the market is taking at the moment? Yeah. So the market now is incredibly strong, and if anything, some of those growthy techie names—if you look at things like Tesla—are are rallying back again. And so, if anything, uh, there's a few headwinds that have presented themselves. And I think the reason for that is some concerns around, uh, I guess, the economic cycle 
and many of these cash flow earning companies are quite cyclical in nature. But also if the economic cycle turns down, there's this view that interest rates will fall again. And then all of a sudden, long duration stocks with uncertain but distant earnings are worth more than they would otherwise be if you were discounting those earnings quite a lot. So I don't know is the answer to the question, but there is a huge disparity of value in the stock market at the moment. And, yeah. and so if you were to say over the next five years, do I think it'll be good for our investment style? I think absolutely. What happens over the next six days or six months is very hard to tell. Yeah, I I, I can't tell that. And I, the, the long-term investors, I don't think would be able to tell that either. I'd probably hope not, actually. that's If, you were, if you're focusing on the next six days and you're not focusing on the next <laughs> six years, I think that's the way that goes. Yeah. Uh, leave the six days to me. The, now, there's a few things that I wanted to get back to. We'll get back to the disparity of value in, 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 a, in a moment. I wanted to talk about, so let's just say that you're the contrarian, you're the, well, let's just say you are the contrarian investors and you want to invest in companies with lots of cash, putting it simply, putting it cash flow. Wouldn't that put tech into a spot, certain areas of tech? You've got Apple, which is one of the biggest cash flow generators ever in, in history. Google, same with Google, same with Microsoft. Would that put them in the sweet spot for you a few months ago to have a look at when they were completely unloved at that time? Uh, I would say yes, obviously outside my immediate investment universe, seeing as where Australian equities focused. But you've just mentioned three amazing companies with worldwide franchises, uh, which in the fullness of time will have businesses that I think are probably stronger than today's. Uh, I think all three of those are prone to an economic cycle. They're not only tech companies. Sure, they're tech enablers, but they're also consumer products companies now as well. And so there is an economic cycle to which they're exposed. Uh, But yes, uh, those did fall down quite a bit. And uh, I know our sister company, Orbis, has at least one of those did start to invest in one of those. So yeah, it's not surprising. I think that value investors around the world have found those somewhat attractive or more so than they were. Yeah, a lot of uh, probably a lot of regrets from people who didn't uh, didn't grab them at those levels. I think personally, there's still there's still some good opportunities around, especially in those spaces. It's there. Um, now, speaking of which, a lot of people are sort of hesitant with what's coming up with the Fed. Every single Fed conversation seems like the biggest Fed conversation in the world. I'm not going to ask you about that, but I am going to ask you about where, over a longer term, you see the cycle sort of switching over the next. A few years. Do you think that we're? I mean, everyone's talking about it. This is the most talked about recession yeah. in history. Um, yeah. So much so, I think that probably it's now sort of become something that people have discarded and dismissed and even priced in. It has to be super deep for the market to really take notice of what's going on. How far do you think that this goes, and how long do you think it goes, and what do you think the ramifications of that are going to be economically? Don't worry about the market. Well, can can I can I go on a two minute? slightly off-piste rant on this topic. I'm going to move the microphone a little bit closer to you as you do that, please. <laughs> well, so well, the, be there, my guest. There's a book that was written called The Triumph of the Optimists, and it later became, uh, I think, St- D- Dimson, Staunton, and Thompson, I think, are the authors. Note that down. And uh, I think it's now no longer published, but Credit Suisse has bought it, and I think it's it's now the Credit Suisse's annual uh, yearbook or something, I don't know. Um, but it looks at the growth of various countries and the stock market returns. Mm -hmm. And so I think everything's on a per capita basis. Everything is adjusted for inflation. And when the book was first published, that 100 years of data across a number of countries, Australia being one of them, um, 
And now we're on to around 117 years. So it's been 17 years since it was first published. And, and there is, according to this data, irrefutable evidence that there is no correlation between per capita GDP growth and stock market returns. Oh, finally. Okay. And, and <laughs> I said two minutes. I probably took a minute. No, um, no, and if that is true, and it is true, then the converse is probably or must be true. And that is if there's a negative GDP per capita shock, a recession, then in and, in and of itself, it has nothing to do with the stock market return and stock market return should be uncorrelated to that. So the answer to your question is who cares from yeah. my perspective. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but, yeah. um, uh, uh, but of course, there's a lot of emotion that drives stock markets in the short term. And uh, I think fears of a recession are some of that. But if, if that has driven the stock market price, I haven't seen it because, of course, we're sort of almost hitting new highs every day. Um, and it's not clear it's going to do anything. And the reason economic weakness is good for incumbents is that it doesn't attract competition. Mm. High-growing companies, industries, countries attract a lot of competition, which erodes returns, which reduces returns to shareholders, which is not good for share prices. So the, it, if the recession doesn't, okay, so top line, it doesn't affect the actual top line of a, of a stock market. If you look at that one number of the S&P 500 or the XJO, that's that's the top line. Well, it does affect it, but it's an emotional effect. It's not an economic it's one. not an economic yeah. one. But and there's certain sectors that would rise and certain sectors that that's would be right, disintegrated yeah. as a recession does take hold. We saw, we, I mean, we saw COVID. If anything, out of COVID, we didn't see the sectors that probably should have been left to the wayside get left away. Yeah, and we fair. probably saw a lot of sectors that probably shouldn't have grown grow too much. Do you think that uh, at what stage? What's you know what? Actually, let's just sort of step. Let's go really off piste. What needs what, what what needs to grow and what doesn't need to grow? This is, this is really, so we're, we're a bit out there. What? How, where does the world need to sort of take the direction that you see? Well, I mean, two hundred years time. I yeah, think okay. our population needs to be half of what it is today to sustain ourselves. We can't keep growing like yeah. we are, um, uh, and, and especially if everyone wants the world to be a less carbon emitting place, we can't keep growing the number of people on the planet. But uh, in, in Australia, th there are imbalances that are causing societal issues like house prices. We've yeah. had a small correction, but it's small. Too small. It's bigger in real terms uh, because, of course, we've had inflation of 10 or so percent since the peak in house prices. Um, and it, yeah, it's not clear to me that a nice but uh, somehow protected recession wouldn't be bring some cathartic outcomes that the economy needs. There seems to be some capital that's misallocated. Uh, so, I, and of course, if this does happen, you don't want to own too much consumer discretionary stuff. Mm. But but then you look at the consumer discretionary companies in Australia and they're just consistently outperforming with uh, revenue growth. And yeah. so I don't know who it is who's visiting JB Hi-Fi and buying new computers every week, but it's happening. I, I, I think that there is a lot. I, I'm looking at my JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman, which I hate as well. Uh, I, sorry, not as well, but I, I, I dislike it along with a, a fair few people in the market, and, and they've been stubbornly bullish. Um, I think that the economists that we've had on have said that, that the end of last year was the last hurrah for our spending, and now money, money is definitely being tightened. Mm. Belts are definitely being tightened. 
and people are being a little bit more restrictive on where they're spending. Do you think that that's probably the way that the Australian consumer is looking at, at, at their spending for the next 12 months or even longer than that? Maybe. As it happens, retail, the ABS retail sales numbers came out today. And yeah, I was they, hoping that you'd touch on that. They, they weren't very good. <laughs> no, they were not. <laughs> but, but then it's uh, – we had an, uh, the December – sales were after a bumper November and, you know, all of these Black Saturday or Super Tuesday or Manic Monday, whatever the things are called, they all yeah. happen in November now. Yeah. And so maybe it's just shifted the the retail cycle forward. And so it's not clear to me that the way the ABS seasonally adjusts these price series is that it, it, it captures that kind of dynamic. But mostly, even though there was a pullback in December, Retail sales in December were 7.5% above the levels that they were a year before. And that's quite, okay, it's not as much as inflation or it's in line with inflation. So maybe that's just normal. That's right. Okay, um, that makes sense. That makes um, sense. So, but but it's not, a, it's not a pullback. It's not a reduction in real terms, which is what you would expect if consumers were tightening their belts. So to the extent that it's happening and your economists are right, um, we haven't seen it come through the data yet. Uh, it would ha- it would be hard for me to imagine it wouldn't ultimately manifest itself in the data. It, it, it has to, even if it's. I mean, there's been speculation that that the sales mean that quantity quantity will still remain high, even though the price of things has actually dropped. So potentially, we'll see that that inflation will come down and the price of actual goods that you need to buy will come down, but that that spending will still stay high because. Well, I, I, it still puzzles me how many laptops people need to buy and things like that. But, but JB Hi-Fi is a complete – they've dropped prices completely across the line, so much so that it's almost crazy for you not to buy that TV or, or, or laptop now if you can afford it Yeah. because you're not going to be able to see those prices again for another – well, if it's coming backwards. I'm not close enough to JB Hi-Fi's prices. I, I know that every time you walk in there, they give you the perception that they're dropping their prices. <laughs> That's not too bad. Now, okay, so let's get back on. Um, we've talked about the cycle. You mentioned the disparity of value. Um, how big are the gaps between cheap and expensive stocks at the moment? Or qu- where is the disparity? Qu- quite big. Yeah. Uh, not as big as it used to be because, of course, you've seen the, some of the, the techie, growthy areas of the market pull back a little bit to, to, together with consumer staples, which have been safe havens and some of the more cyclically impacted downbeat companies like, say, energy, uh, rally a bit. And so that's that's narrowed the gap. But uh, there is a and, – and in Australia, no one really cares about the tech sector because it's pretty much 4% of our stock market. Mm. It's tiny. We're not talking about the, the Goliaths that you mentioned earlier. But the healthcare companies, they're in the mid to high 30s, some of them in the low 40s times earnings. And you have on the other end of the spectrum, energy at less than 10, materials near 10 times earnings. Um, You have consumer staples in the mid 20s. You have some crazies out there, the really, really, really crazies. They exist everywhere that are on uh, high multiples of earnings, which probably will never eventuate and so effectively bankrupt companies that have sold a great story yeah um you, are you allowed to name any or is it just something that you just, well just, well i mean I, what's, I, what's in it, your untouchable it, list at the moment i mean it's it's 
Well, I mean, it's, I, 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 I'm going to respect the investors who've chosen to to allocate capital to those and not mention them. Good but, answer. But <laughs> my phone, my phone does tend to ring whenever someone says something very controversial. Yeah, it's a, no, I, I, um, I'd rather not say. But of course, they exist, and from time to time, we, we may even get stuck with one of them. Who knows? But uh, ho- hopefully not. But so, so we're talking about. Some companies out there trade at very high multiples of earnings that actually aren't low. Buying a company at a high multiple of earnings is not such a bad thing if those earnings are depressed. Mm-hmm. But there are earnings out there that are not cyclically low. Think about the healthcare companies. In fact, uh, some of those have really benefited from COVID and are now beginning to pull back in terms of the level of earnings, yet the multiples are still very, very high. Um, and then... I, I wouldn't have thought Woolworths, Coles, and the like, West Farmers. I don't think their earnings are low. In fact, if anything, parts of West Farmers' earnings are very high. If you think about Bunnings, yet you're paying really high multiples for these companies in the mid twenties. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where you could definitely argue that the iron ore miners don't have low earnings, but you do pay a low multiple for them. And so you need to make this adjustment. What are normal earnings? And so everyone seems to obsess about if there's a recession company abc bad bad choice of letters say bhp's earnings are going to fall okay so what well how much do i pay for that today the fact that they're going to fall doesn't mean the price i pay today is too high now we don't own bhp but it's an example it's it's only half of the the battle is knowing which direction earnings will will move and what level they'll settle on the other bit is making sure you don't lose sight of the price that you pay today and whether it already discounts that. If it, if it actually makes sense. Yeah, okay. and we think in a number of energy companies it does. Some of the materials we think they do. So um, uh, you, you mentioned energy. I'm going to ask you one question, then we'll be able to get around. You'll see a segue, which is actually I've just come up with now. So let's just stick with it here for, if, if we can for, for half a moment. G'day, it's James here. We're going to take a quick break from our chat with Simon, but... Take a break from vanilla ETFs and discover Global X's innovative funds and industry-leading research to back your investment ideas. Learn more at www.globalxetfs.com.au. Now, back to the show. Um, energy. So the Chinese reopening. You mentioned BHP. You mentioned iron ore. One of the biggest inf- probably influences on us at, for the next 12 months at least is a Chinese reopening. How much is that factoring into your into your decision making now because it is it has to be a long-term situation the china reopening and where they're moving into and and its influence on the australian market yeah so i I think the bit when you say reopening are are you talking about covid reopening or or trade tension a little bit of both at the same sort of time the covid reopening has provided a big sugar rush yeah but where do you where where do you factor in the trade tension that that easing of that yeah. Keeping in mind that there's a presidential election in 2024. Yeah, so the COVID reopening, I mean, surely we all knew that that was going to happen. It's just a question of whether it happened now or in six months' time. It took, it took 10 minutes instead of 20 minutes. We've, we've, we've been down this path a few times yep. for a few countries and all of them have ended up in the same way, reopen. Um, so that was going to happen. And so I don't think that has or, or shouldn't really have caused the dial to move that much. Um, and then the trade tensions. Yeah, I, I wonder. I where were the depressed earnings that came about as a result of the trade tensions? And let's put away, put aside all of the companies that sold penfolds to China. So yeah, they, yeah. they, you know, Treasury Wine have had to 
reinvent itself. Some some of the farming community have had to do the same with, uh, I think, barley was barley, one of the yeah. ones. So no listed barley company. So, okay, we don't have a data point there. But if you think about all of the others with the trade tensions, the iron ore miners, you know, well, China never really shut that off because no. they need them. Coal, they coal. shut them off. Yeah, where were coal prices? $300 a ton. Yeah, These companies are making off like bandits. So the trade tensions and, and the closing of China did not hurt these companies. Why is it that the reopening is going to benefit them so greatly? And so I think it's a mostly a non-event. Okay. Oh, that's, that's, that's a good answer. Now, okay, because we mentioned China, we've mentioned energy. Uh, how does ESG... Uh, factor into any of the thinking that you've that you've got in that. Obviously, it's a, it's been a hot topic. It was a hot topic. It was easy to do ESG when the market was 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 running hot. We saw a huge rationalisation at the beginning of last year with the invasion of the Ukraine, um, because then all of a sudden people realised that you can't invest in ESG when energy is running that high, and all of a sudden you're underperforming. There's a thousand different reasons for that. The speculation that potentially investing in Weapons manufacturers could have been classed as ESG to secure energy future and sustainability. That was a little bit silly at the time, but it was definitely something that was speculated by fund managers uh, overseas. Um, how much does it uh, does it factor in for for Alan Gray thinking? Mm. Well, I, I think you've posed the question in a way that implies that energy companies are ESG uh, poor or carry a, a black mark against their ESG rating. And and, and, I, and I think okay. that yeah. that is unfair. <laughs> no, very, no, that, that <laughs> so, is a good answer. I did, I did, I did pose it like that. That's right. So, so um, and, and, and of course, I, I think the big thing that's changed in ESG over the last, say, five years is it's just become E. So whenever someone mentions the, 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 the letters ESG, they're really talking about greenhouse gas emissions and not much more. Um, and... I think there is an increasing realization that the energy transition is real. There's, there's an affordability uh, outcome that needs to be taken into consideration. And I do feel that on the E of ESG, that, that the market is becoming a little bit more balanced as opposed to having shot from the hip initially, which was, you know, sell all hydrocarbon producing companies. We don't need them. They are the antichrist. That that narrative doesn't exist any longer. No. Um, but the ESG focus, rightly, I think, remains and will continue to thrive. Uh, and, and from our perspective, because you did ask how Alan Gray looks, about, looks at these things, but uh, the value of every company, it doesn't matter what they do, whether they make exercise bikes that become long-term coat hangers in your living room or, or <laughs> extract oil and gas, yeah. the value of those two companies on the opposite end of the spectrum are the same, and that is the present value of the future cash flows that they generate. And in order to be able to discount some future cash flows, you need those cash flows to be sustainable. And in order to be sustainable, well, I mean... The rest is obvious. Uh, you know, they need a social license. They need to do things that people need, uh, and they can get disrupted. Then, of course, the, the, the earning stream is finite, and the discount um, discounted cash flows end up being low. So, those are important aspects of the whole valuation process. So, I don't think there's any successful investor that can uh, exist for long, or any investor that could have a, a successful history if they ignore the sustainability of the cash flows that the companies they invest in are likely to generate. And so that's sort of the lens that we take 
to to ESG. We we spend a lot of time on it, but but for us, it's not a it's not a gate you need to walk through. I mean, there can be companies that are particularly poor on various ESG metrics, and but the price that you that that is on offer is so attractive, it makes sense to buy the company and agitate for change. Yeah. Um, we're not a shareholder in AGL, and I'm pretty sure the AGL board would have told me to press on if I tried to weigh in on the debate with AGL and Grok Ventures or whatever it was. You know, the only people who had a say were the people who had a seat around the table, and the only people who had a seat around the table were shareholders. Yep. So you have to, you can only advocate for change, improvement from the position of ownership. And so we don't have a divestment approach to ESG. I, it's funny that you mentioned that, and, and thank you. That is a, that's that's a good answer, and probably one of the most valid ESG answers that I think that we've heard maybe in the last twelve months. Uh, amazingly, I'm 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 not big on it. I'm big on trying to uncover exactly how much of it was just pushed on people as being a bit of a sham, and now sort of we're seeing the reckoning in it, and people actually making sensible decisions in things about saying I may, may I may have more influence owning this than being on the outside complaining about it or or, or by not owning it. And I think that it's funny because I saw an, a, a Financial Times headline this morning talking about passive investors being a little bit more active when it comes to the decision-making process and where they've got potentially a conflict that's going on there. Do you think that we're going to see more of a rise of that active that active investor actually coming and weighing in? We've, we've already seen a few activist investor moves in the last couple of months. Do you think that we might see more with regards to, to, to agitation? Um uh, it would be nice, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I think it would be not not just from an ESG perspective across all aspects, and well, the the governance part of ESG would be a good place to focus. It would be a lovely place um, to focus, trust me. But there is a lot of apathy out there. Um, I sense more so in Australia than in places like the US, uh, which is almost the home of these activist investors, anyway. Um, I would put us in the category of more active than normal in, in terms of agitation. And, and we really, really struggle to effect change or implement change or bring about change, even for companies where we own more than 10% of the issued capital. And really? So it is hard. Yeah. Really? That's, um, actually, no, I won't ask you that. I was going to ask about sort of how much influence you could actually have in certain companies, that, like how, how often they'd be able to take your call. They'd always have to take your call, wouldn't they? Well, we, we're a reasonably low-touch investor. You don't want the management teams and boards that you've tasked with stewarding your capital to to have to blow smoke up an investor's backside 24-7. <laughs> so, Just a little bit. <laughs> um, so we, we are low-touch, and I guess then when we do touch, we hope that people listen and it is a bit more impactful. But uh, on the... There have been occasions where we have really struggled to make change. I mean, AMP of five or so years ago was a classic example. Mm. It was very difficult to bring about some of those changes. Um, we've publicly made some statements around what's happened at Instech Pivot that we've been unhappy with, and uh, we've, we owned well over 5% of the company, not over 10% of the company. Yeah. And, um, it's not clear how successful we'll be with that, and... We're in the process of writing a letter to Newcrest board and we own more than 5%, but slightly less than 10% of that company. And I'm not sure how successful we'll be there, but we we, we certainly will try. Um, but it is hard to... So so welcome anyone who wants to employ activism in Australia. I think it'll be a good thing. 
but but everyone does see the world through a slightly different lens and everyone has a different time horizon uh, and so it's not clear that activism itself would be a good thing uh, because it might just maximize it might bring about sugar hits for certain companies and these activist shareholders can sail off into the sunset quickly yeah with, so, with what they need and then off you go there's no there's no lockdown there's no locking someone into a shareholding precisely kind of yeah yeah yeah, so. yeah. I've, I've made your change you got the 10 percent. you wanted it now off you go and we never see you again and, and then you're probably going to see boards and then the board and the management team are left holding the can yeah or, and, and the rest of the shareholder register yeah so yeah just simply because they yeah i i, I can see that then you've got a board who continually tr- has to answer the call from you guys and has to continue to try to make you happy yeah. instead of actually running the company exactly i yeah. mean we are glorified pen pushers who sit behind a monitor and an Excel spreadsheet. Now let's yeah. let's get on to that because we, I mean uh, we're about close to wrap up. I know that your time is limited, um, and so thank you very much again, Simon, for joining us. Uh, uh, the we didn't get a chance to touch on on who you are and how you applied your trade, where you've come from. Do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of sort of where where you came from, where you learnt what you learnt, and how you uh, where, where you developed the expertise that you have? If, if that's okay for you to go into. Okay, sure. So. I, um, I, well, I came to Australia, f- uh, in 2001 and I'm the son of Irish parents, but we grew up, well, from a young age, we moved to South Africa. And when I first came to Australia, I came on a holiday visa and I, I, I got a, what was then a 457 working visa at Macquarie. And it was only then that I really, started getting quite interested in financial markets. So not that long ago, I had, I did own a few shares beforehand and, you know, I, I was more a very mainstream investor at the time. I would read what other people write. I'd be very heavily influenced by what I read in the newspaper. And I just went with the flow. I was a very consensus kind of investor. Uh, if lithium is going to go up and demand a lot, these lithium companies are the ones to buy and I would buy them. Yep. That was then. Uh, and then, uh, through my, it was only two or so years at Macquarie, I uh, was working in what at the time was called, or a part of the group that was supporting what was called Equity Markets Group. And this, the stock market in Australia, it was my first exposure to anything in Australia, but also to the stock market in Australia. And I, I, I began to start following a few companies a little bit more closely and then decided I wanted to do my, the CFA program because I wanted to move into research. I, I'm... I'm an introvert and I think research suits my personality and I happen to be interested in research as well. So, you know, it was a win-win. I did my CFA and, and I actually really struggled to get into the industry. Um, I'm not sure whether I was knocking on the right doors or recruitment agents is what it was, but then I met um, or was introduced through a recruitment agent uh, to Simon Marais, mm-hmm. who in 2005 came out to Australia. He had been the chief investment officer of Alan Gray Limited in South Africa and then our sister company, Orbis London. And he had decided that he didn't want to raise his family in England uh, on the Mud Island for obvious reasons and came to Australia and set up what was then called Orbis Investment Management Australia, but now called Alan Gray Australia. Um, and, yeah, I just... You know, I guess a lot of people say things like this, but it was uh, a bit fortuitous for me because he there was a lot to do at the beginning that he didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so 
I just passed my CFA exams or, or became a charter holder and I wanted to do research. And he said to me, you can do research 50% of the time and the other 50% of the time you need to help set up the business. And that was, you know, getting our PDS, getting our financial services license, setting up, Giving the AFSL oh, amendment, things all, like that. All of that stuff, yeah, client yeah. services, oh, legal, it's a, it's make sure all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, it's gotten easier, uh, but I don't know. Not while you're doing 50% research, though, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so, and I thought, okay, well, 50% research is better than none. And yeah. he said, I'll give you a two-year contract. And at the end of two years, one of a number of things will happen. Either we're going to part ways because I don't want you, or you're going to have to choose between a research role or... Uh, sort of a more business role Um, and then two years came up and we hired another person on the business side and I could start moving more and more into into the research almost exclusive side of things and that was by 2007 2007 2008 and then the financial crisis hit and then yeah and then unfortunately Simon passed away um, in February 15 yeah, 26th of February 15. Um, and yeah, that's unfortunately, uh, if you've ever, if, if anyone had ever met him or seen him, he was a very tall man with very big shoes, uh, literally and figuratively. And, and yeah, our business was, uh, we weren't, clearly we were not ready for that. And so it was, it was quite a tumultuous period emotionally and just, from a business perspective. Um, and we, at the time, were going through a similar drawdown in performance then to the one we've just recently come out of in 2021. So, yeah, all in all, yeah, quite a baptism of fire. Um, yeah, some of it <laughs> I look upon, look back on fondly, but most of it I look back on and say, uh, hopefully never again. Well, that... <laughs> Thank you for, for, for sharing that with us, uh, but just in the journey and where it came from, and and, uh, and that was, I've heard uh, I've heard Simon uh, mentioned in revered tones of just about what a what a legend he was. Yeah, uh, great man. So, um, that's uh, thank you so much for that. Look, I'm I'm, I'm not going to take up any more of your time for that. Thank you so much for joining us today and the insights that you've uh, that you've given us, uh, Simon Mawini, Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer of Alan Gray. Oh, now there was something else. So you, um, the uh, to access the funds, you're available through M funds. You've got a balance fund, a stable fund, and and just an equity fund, and just straight and, equity, yeah. and the straight equity fund as well. All available on the on the managed funds platforms uh, that anyone can get access to as well. More information will be on the website for anyone who does want access to. And I strongly suggest that you actually check it out because uh, some of the people that I trust almost with my with my life and my finances. Uh, recommend you so strongly as well that uh, that's the sort of the faith that, that the smartest people in the industry have got in you so that's coming with some pretty revered tones uh, for yourself as well now okay so thank you very much for joining us uh, Simon Winnie uh, Alan Gray cheers for that thank you very much you can find us on iTunes at the BIP show or wherever you get your podcasts we're on Twitter at the underscore BIP underscore show and we're on Facebook too just search for the BIP show I've got a website just Google Whelan Capital. It's got all of the links and all of the documents that you want to know. Individually, I am at James Whelan42 on Twitter. The show is produced by whoever I could find on the day. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next time. This episode might be over, but your ETF investing journey with Global Xs is only just beginning. The expert team at Global X ETFs is ready to support your goals with their wide suite of ETFs. For the latest updates, 
Follow Global X ETFs on LinkedIn and Twitter at Global X ETFs Australia. Hey everyone, it's James here. Really quickly, thank you for listening to the show and thank you for all of your support that you've that you've given me through the year. Merry Christmas and a happy new year. Just a note also, I am hosting a webinar in February next year. It's going to be jam-packed an hour. It's online. Lots of guest speakers have lined up already and uh, and it's going to be great. So if you could show your support, get behind that one and and click an RSVP, uh, it's, uh, it's it'd be a great sign. It's going to be a great night. I'm really, really looking forward to it. So thanks, guys. But for now, have yourself a great break. If you're taking one, Merry Christmas, New Year. Stay safe.